Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. Today is a special episode. Over the past 27 weeks, I've been very fortunate to interview a range of people in the media, from newspapers to radio to television. It's been the most rewarding project in my career to date, and I'm very grateful for every guest who spared me the time to share stories from their careers. To be honest, I didn't have a guest lined up for this week, but I didn't want to break the weekly sequence, so I've cobbled together some of my favourite stories from over 27 hours of content in what I've titled Media Mates Memorable Moments. I hope you enjoy the show as much as I have in putting it together. We start off with a remarkable story of survival from Roger White in episode 13. I was in a plane that uh, lost its side. Uh, United 811. So my wife and I were coming back from Colorado Springs from that stint to, to go and work at New FM in Newcastle. Yeah. And out of uh, Honolulu at 27,000 feet, the, uh, the plane gave way and lost a, the side out of it and 10 passengers, nine or 10 passengers. So that was on the way home from, from that. So that was a, an interesting, uh, day because the plane managed to get back to Honolulu airport because it was about yeah. an hour out on two engines. And without those nine passengers in the plane, the pilot, the head pilot, the captain made just amazing landing at Honolulu Airport in the middle of the night. And um, we got back and it was three weeks after the Lockerbie bombing and they thought it might have been another one. Right, okay, yeah. Um, because it was uh, an American airline and they quarantined us, the FBI, behind barriers to try and speak to each of us. And being a young journo working at 2WS at the time in Sydney, I jumped the, the barrier and ran through the airport trying to pi- find a payphone. And, right, okay. Um, I had a few guys. Because, of course, you wouldn't have had the mobile. Then, no, right? <laughs> you didn't. I was literally trying to find a payphone. I had a couple of guys kind of following me and chasing me. Finally, I found the payphone and I rang 2WS. And it must have been a Saturday morning breakfast because uh, the late, great uh, Greg Henricks was on the other end of the phone and... And I told him, you know, that I'm in Honolulu. And he said, oh, Dodgy. He said, oh, they've just had a plane accident. I said, oh, no, Buffett, I'm, I'm on the plane. <laughs> oh, so he, so uh, he said, let me set up the reel-to-reel. And uh, so he said, oh, Walkley Award, Walkley Award. No, I didn't get one of those, but it was a, it was a, uh, an interesting experience relaying my experience to, to Hendo that day. Well, and- well, can you look back on it 30 years on? I mean, what? Does it evoke memories? Does it what what were you thinking when all of a sudden the yeah. side comes off the plane and there's people getting well, they were sucked out, I would imagine. Like- well, it literally was, I think, Ralph, one or two in the morning. Um, pitch black. Uh, most of us had dozed off. It was probably forty minutes into the flight. Right. One in the morning, you just get on the plane, just want to go to sleep mm. after being at the beach all day in Honolulu. So we um we didn't know where we were. We could have been halfway to Auckland for that matter, because the flight was Honolulu to Auckland. And uh, we literally didn't know where we were and all of a sudden there were people being dragged down the back of the plane and there was just mist and debris everywhere. And I remember standing up to try and punch a hole because everyone's masks had come down from – oxygen masks had come down yeah. bar my wife's and mine. And I remember an Aussie guy that was sitting behind me, he just took his mask off and said, mate, don't worry, he said that they're not working anyway. And as we found out that all of the oxygen tanks had gone out the hole right. uh, into the ocean. So – um yeah, so they miraculously miraculously got the plane back onto uh, onto the tarmac in uh, Honolulu and 
couple of days later, we were back on a, a plane that worked <laughs> to Auckland and then Sydney and back to radio. When it comes to storytelling, they don't get much better than Murray Olds, who in episode four told me about the early days of his career at the Christchurch Press. This is long before the internet, long before uh, emails and so on. And we had two major rugby writers and uh, they took turns to go away on on trips with the All Blacks. Might go to South Africa, might go to the UK, might go to... And uh, it was my job as the genie to go in and take copy and uh, this could come in any time of the day or night, that sort of thing. And um, it took me a while to work out that if the um, somewhere in the copy was the phrase "the grizzled veteran," that, that had meant the bloke on the road had scored somewhere <laughs> in the UK, up and <laughs> back into Scotland, <laughs> some knee trembler in an alley out the back of the Dundee, and you know the Brewers' Arms. And um, it was an honour system. There was no way of checking. So it could have been Brooksy away or it could have been Kevin away. And the other one would come in and, and read that story the, the following morning and say, Packer, he's got another one. <laughs> so the grizzled veteran was uh, was the phrase. And uh, I learned a lot. I was only 23 and, you know, with these old blokes around, lots of drinking and smoking and carrying on. It was uh, it was a great learning curve. In episode four, Brian Sando-Sanders remembers giving Daryl Broman his start in radio. Because I'd interviewed him a few times and I knew he was a very funny guy and I, I just thought he'd work and it worked out much better than I than I thought it would. We had a, a, a sideline guy who was a an old friend of mine, we used to play football with him, uh, Robert uh, the Beanbag Meekings we used to call him. Daryl came up with the nickname because he was like on the sideline, he's this fat guy and he, you know, 2KA sloppy Joe with bloody pie stains down the front. <laughs> <laughs> and Daryl says, have a look at him down there. He looks like a beanbag with hair. So that the beanbag stuck. And people used to arrive at the ground with signs, we love the beanbag, you know, because we just give him stick every game. And the people started to side with him and feel a bit sorry for him. Phil Gould didn't feel sorry for him. Oh, really? No. No, Phil Gould uh, <laughs> took a bit of a dislike to him because we went up to went up to the Gold Coast and Steve Carter got replaced by Phil Gould and Beanbag was there and he was basically saying, look, he's down here, he is visibly very upset, Steve Carter. He just, you yeah. know, he's got tears streaming down his face. This is quite distressing. Anyway, it got back to Phil Gould that Beanbag had said it. And the next game was against Souths at um, Allianz. And Penrith got hammered. And we're, we're, I'm talking down the line to the Beanbag and I said, mate, you've got to get an interview with Phil Gould. He's, you know, he's got to be answerable for this. There's no point talking to any of the players that we talk to every week. You know, we've got, we've got to have the coach on. Yeah. And he's in the dressing room and he's a bit sheepish. And he says, he says, oh, mate, I don't think that would be a, a good idea at the moment. I said, mate, just go and get him. You know, I'm talking down the line. This is not on Yeah, air. this is not this going is to air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just get him. We'll do the, the questioning. He goes over and I hear this thump and crash and swearing and shouting going on. Phil Gould had gotten hold of him yeah. and thrown him into one of the lockers <laughs> <laughs> and they're having to pull Phil Gould off. He's going to bloody punch the crap out of him. And we could we could hear this is not good. So we just rolled on Daryl and I and got to the end of the broadcast. And Beanbag came up and told us what had happened. So we had to keep him away from uh, Phil Gould for the rest of the season. 
Sarah Harris recalled her tough upbringing in episode two and says it's made her who she is today. I was a housing commission kid and we didn't have any money and, you know, my mother who was, you know, 18 when she had me, a week after her 18th birthday I was born. Um, You know, she had the weight of the world on her shoulders but she still had really good advice for me and that was we might not have much money but you can work really hard at school and whatever you work hard for, you know, you will get. And I did. I pushed myself as a kid and, you know, and even when we first moved to, to Queensland, we lived in caravan parks, you know, for a couple of years. We just had no money. We were just so broke, you know. I got called the, the poor kid at school and missed out on going on excursions and, and that type of thing. Mum did the absolute best she could, but, you know, with two kids, it was it was really tough and, and not much family around. Um, so, yeah, so that it, – it, it's taught me – it's taught me um, – yeah, def- definitely empathy, definitely to be so grateful for what I have now. And um, hard work ethic. And, 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 and work your bloody ass off. Jodie Spears told me in episode 14 when she knew she wanted to become a journo. I can tell you where it really kind of clicked for me. Um, Kylie Simmons was the police reporter at the time. No, Kylie, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I was a bit in awe of her because she'd done all these big stories and like the quarry fields riots and all this stuff. And so I was sent out with her one day and... Oftentimes when you're the work experience person, you feel like a bit of a spare part. You know, you're trying to be useful. And so we were sent to this press conference at Liverpool Hospital where a woman had left her baby. She'd sort of freaked out and abandoned the baby and police were doing an appeal for her. And so I was sort of holding the microphone for Kylie and, um, you know, we got through this press conference. And then suddenly the phone rang and the newsroom was like, get to this park in wherever. It was obviously somewhere near Liverpool in the yeah. suburbs. And Mark Latham's doing a press conference and we were like, oh, shit, okay, jump in the car. This is before GPS. So I think Kylie then went, awesome, I've got someone with me who can look at the maps and stuff. So I'm navigating to this park and the heart's racing. Because otherwise she would have had to have done it herself, driving, got the sideways on the the lap while she's, uh, you know, trying to frantically get there. Exactly. And, like, there wasn't a lot of time. He'd sort of called this snap press conference and he'd been under pressure and whatever and no one was quite expecting this to happen. And so we screamed to a halt at this park. Latham, you know, storms up and he's fired up like he he is a lot of the time and he Mm. announces that he's pulling the pin. And this was, you know, a big story. It was over summer, I think, and he'd been under pressure, pulled the pin and... You know, he started going off at all the journos and the camos, like calling us all animals and whatever. And I was sort of desperately trying to, you know, race after him with the microphone and whatever. Mm. And afterwards, you know. Did you say fire footage of that? Oh, probably. I remember seeing it on TV that <laughs> night and going, Mum, that's my hand. Oh. And she was like, okay. But I was so excited that I'd been there yeah. watching this. I just thought it was like the biggest privilege to, you know, see something sort of that everyone's talking about happen. And um, afterwards, Kylie was on this high because she'd, you know, obviously been under pressure and had nailed this thing. She'd got yeah. on air. It wasn't even her domain. It was politics. You know, she did crime. Yeah. But you step into whatever you have to do in news. And um, at the end of that day, I was like, this is awesome. Like, this is, yeah, definitely for me. In episode three, Glenn Daniel chatted about having to deliver an on-air tribute to the late, great Greg Hendricks. You know, in one way it was easy because he'd made such a, a benchmark about reporting uh, for Radio News. So I, I'd, I'd actually kept a wealth of material as I would do 
training at the film, television and radio school and other courses. I would sometimes use Greg's examples. Um, but in another way, it was, it was extremely sad. It was almost there was an unreal feeling of I can't believe I'm delivering an on-air obituary to one of my closest mates and, and certainly someone that, that uh, I admired and the way that Greg could actually take complex information and explain it on the air so a listener who couldn't read a script, couldn't see what was going on, understood it. It was quite amazing and uh, he was a standout, but he was one of the people that taught me as well how to communicate and and to stand live on a scene, sometimes with not the time to write any notes and have someone cross to you and say, describe what's going on. And he had that simple ability to look with his eyes and communicate with his mouth and the listener had the picture. They knew what was going on because of the language he chose, the brevity that he used with with uh, words, uh, he was brilliant. So he was he was one of the standouts, I thought, as a reporter. Rachel Corbett talked about her unique radio partnership with Paul Murray in episode 12. With Paul and I, it was one of those interesting situations where Scott Muller, who is, you know, we owe a great deal of debt to him for getting us on the air originally. Um, he really saw something in Paul and I and pushed like I've never seen anybody push to get us on air. And, um, and it was, yeah, it was amazing. I'll, I'll forever owe a debt to him. Um, but literally Scott said, you know what? I think that you should, I, I had actually contacted Scott because we'd never met. And I said, Hey, this is me. Here's my, here's my demo and stuff. And he said, you know, I think you should meet this guy, Paul Murray. And Paul was about to do a night show. Paul and I met for coffee and there was just something about the way that we saw things, the way that we chatted. We just really clicked and, you know, he sort of said, oh, we should definitely do something. So we decided to get in the studio together and it was fun. It was great. And we put together something, you know, I mean, I think we only – recorded 20 minutes or something, but Scott really saw something in that. We felt something in that. And so Scott said about kind of, you know, editing, helping us edit that down into something that he could eventually he ended up, I think, pitching it to the board. It had to go that high because yeah. they basically had no plan to put, you know, he was planned, Paul was planned to have a night show in, but there was zero budget, and no plan to have anybody with him. And, and Scott really pushed and said, look, I think that this show would work. And so we ended up doing nights and then we went to breakfast uh, for a little while and then we got to the stage where they were building the grill team behind the scenes and um, and they actually came to us and said, I think we have to get you off the air because people are becoming quite attached and you're not the, you know, we're, we were always just filling in space there while they put the grill team together and they was, you know, they said we need to get the grill team on because we're in a bit of trouble here yeah. if, if people get too attached. We don't want to drag you off if they like you. So then we ended up going to, to drive and, and now we do a podcast together. Um, and so, yeah, the relationship, it was just one of those magical sort of arranged marriages that happen in uh, radio a lot, but what is rare about it is that it works. In 2004, there was a famous piece of leaked audio from the Athens Olympics involving a blow-up from Ray Hadley. Anthony Clark explained his role in the controversy in Episode 9. It was actually my story that, that sparked that blow-up that morning. Um, so did you get a dressing down from Ray? Um, no, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I mean, the I, I recall the way that it, it kind of unfolded because because of the time difference, it was very late at night possibly even early morning over there. And it was leading into breakfast in Sydney. Yes. And, you know, you, you, you put all your stories in the can for 
for the whole of breakfast, well, before the breakfast shift actually starts. So um, you've pre-recorded all of them, and I had pre-recorded all of the stories from about 5 o'clock in the morning through to 9 o'clock, you know, stories for every single half hour. And uh, it must have been just after 5.30 back home. Okay. Uh, and I was on the bus going back to the, the media village when Justin Kelly got a phone call um, and... He was the FNS referred to in the tape. Yes, yeah. So he, he was the news director at the time and um, he certainly got a, a pretty sizable tickle up uh, over the stories uh, that I had filed. He went into bat for me, you know. We we, we we had a you know pretty solid plan about what we were doing and what we were using for all of those stories. And, and look, we, we understood everyone's working long hours. You're not getting much much sleep, um, and I think at that point, yeah, it was one of those things. People blow up from time to time, and you move on. And we moved on, but it was a couple of days later, I think, maybe a day or so later, uh, and someone uh, from Two GB rang me and said that blow up the other day, um, it's gone public, and. Well, see, this when, is this. These are the days even before social media. So the mm. only way to transport something like that was to send it via email, mm. and I think everybody in Sydney media got that email. Oh yeah, yeah. So this was the famous spray that um, that Ray had down the line back to somebody in Sydney, not to Justin, but um, you know, some some harsh words were said in that. Certainly, um, it it was. A really bizarre time being over there and seeing all of this unfold. I think we had three, four people, three people from the newsroom, myself, Justin Kelly and Zoe Allabone, were working over there at the time. So a really small team. And for something like that to blow up and suddenly, you know, that is the story that everyone at home is talking about, about the Olympic Games, Um, that was a bizarre situation to be in. Trevor Long was also mentioned in the spray and he addressed the issue in episode 21. That experience was exactly the same as a hundred other such experiences during that Olympics, let's be clear. Except you it know, was just this one well, was recorded. It, well, let's be clear, everything was recorded and that's my fault. I made the decision that the, the core um, line from Athens would be recorded on Flashlogger continuously so that if he was sitting in front of a tube and saw something, he could just, he could just call it and we could, we could replay it. I'd never need to, I'd never miss a thing because, you know, trust me, that would have been worse yeah. <laughs> if I'd have missed him call something and not be able to turn it around and put it on air. So that was that was my decision and I stand by it. But in the end, someone in the building um, heard that, that, that spray, which to me was just another another angry spray <clears throat> about something that he was passionate about. He was passionate about we paid a lot of money for the broadcast rights, and that gave us the entitlement to play audio whenever the hell we wanted. And the news team decided not to that hour, despite the fact that he had said, this is going to happen, we'll lead with it. So two people made different decisions, and he was unhappy about it. He was very unhappy about it, and he wanted me to write an email to John Brennan, as the, as the tape clearly says. Mm. Um, I didn't give it any, any other thought other than probably to send an email to John Brennan about it. Um, and then two days later, it was in the paper. Now, the, I'll tell you the biggest thing I regret about that time, and I don't think we've ever spoken about it, Justin and I, um, was... Justin Kelly, the Justin news director Kelly, at the time. 
when when it was in the paper, it was in the Daily Telegraph in the confidential section, top right. I don't know why I remember that. But he knew it was in the paper and we went off air, you know, 5.30 in the morning and I was still sitting in the Corvetting area. Breakfast team was just kind of, the highlights were on. Yeah, they yeah. were getting, so it was just me. And he said, read me the article. So I read him the article. And look, let's be clear. I'm on his side. I work for him. I'm his guy. So I read in the article in the same tone that he wanted to hear the article and I read it as as, as a Hadley guy. Yeah. No, no bones about it. I left the left the office and my phone rang and it was Justin Kelly. Steam, I was listening to that. He was in the studio in Athens in another room listening because I was just talking down the line. Yeah. I wasn't talking on the phone. He heard everything I said. And you know what? That's not a that's not a great feeling. And I, I that's probably the one thing I regret is that I, I didn't take myself out of the, you know, close, you know, circle of uh, support for Hadley yeah. and go, actually this is a shit situation, Ray, and and we need to reflect on what, what happened. So I didn't feel great and you know, Justin and I didn't have a great relationship for a while after that, obviously. Were you but, in a management position at that stage? Uh two thousand four. Um yeah, I think I was assistant program director. And, yep. But you were also head of the Olympic coverage. Yeah, I was. I was the executive producer of the continuous call team, the Olympics, and assistant program director, which meant I rostered the panel operators, the phone operators, and made sure that there was always someone on shift. Yep. So, how did you patch it up with Justin eventually? Got to, got to, got to say, I don't remember. Time heals all wounds. And, and this may sound terrible, especially if Ros is listening. But I'm just, I move on. I move on from things. There's, there's a couple of things that happen in life that that have have never mended themselves, and they're they're quite quite regretful things. But um, I think Rosa, Rosa was able to move on, I don't know, I think entirely, but certainly in other jobs and things, and we just had to reconnect over time in other jobs. He's now a PR guy who I deal with regularly, and, you know, hopefully there's no – certainly hope, hope there's no bad blood over that. It was a long time ago, and and I don't feel that he was, he was well-treated. I think he was very poorly treated. In Episode 15, Edwina Bartholomew told me how the constant fear of losing her job makes her strive to do better every day. As strange as that might be for people to hear, I think it's actually a really healthy thing to think because you're always trying to do the the best possible job that you can do. But at the end of the day, you have to be prepared that if everything changes tomorrow and you are at the will of a lot of people in this industry, you don't always make your own decisions no, change your management means yeah, you change, change your direction. It means, it means like you change your talent, you know. You know someone <laughs> decides they don't like blondes one day, they like brunettes or whatever. You put your foot in it and people hate you. You know, things change, swings and roundabouts. You have to be prepared for anything. And I think I have I think I have a good attitude to that. I'm not suggesting that I won't be crying into my Ben and Jerry's, you know, on the couch watching reruns of my own segments, you know, if it happens or something. But uh, no, I won't be. But, uh, you know, like, of course, that would be devastating, but you've got to be prepared for anything in this game. Cassandra Wood talked about the sheer terror she felt working behind the scenes on TV in episode 19. When I first started, I was I was lining up the 11am um, news and I used to freak out. Like I just, I used to get so nervous doing that and being on air during that time because in the daytime bulletins, generally that's when there's a lot more breaking news and things happening. And whereas the 6 p.m. news, it's sort of, there's a lot more format. It's a lot more structured. It's encapsulating the day, right? Exactly. It's a wrap up of the day and everything is planned. It's not just oh, there's stuff happening now, let's just take a live chopper shot and just, uh, you know, getting the presenters here and talk to pitchers. Like that doesn't happen on 6pm. I mean, if there's breaking news, we'll always go to it and we'll take it and all the rest of it. But with the 
daytime news bulletins, it was sort of treated a lot more like rolling coverage. And I'll never, ever forget one day. It was so bad. It was one of the first bulletins I'd done. And Amelia Adams, who's one of my really good friends, was the presenter at the time. And Tim Sheridan was reading sport. And you know, thank Christ, they're both such lovely humans and it didn't all <laughs> go to shit the way it, will, it could have. But I, I remember there was, there was rolling coverage, there was stuff happening. And I think we were taking, we were taking pictures, um, from the chopper and Amelia was just talking over them, but it happened to happen right in the middle of the sport break. So Shero had sort of stopped and Amelia was like, okay, we're going to take you to breaking news now. And whatever it was, I can't for the life of me remember what the story was. But I remember thinking, God, like the, we're running out of time. Like we've got to get this last ad break away because we're running out of time. Like we're just, we've got to get this ad break away. And then, you know, we probably had right in the last bit of the bulletin, there was a, a minute set aside for news, uh, sorry, for weather. By that point, I'm thinking, shit, we're only going to have about 10 seconds left for weather. And, and I remember saying um, to I, – I thought I was saying to Amelia, throw to an ad break, but I was talking to, to Shero and I was in his ear and I'm going, okay, just throw to a break. We're going to throw to a break now. We're going to throw to a break, throw to a break. And so Shero has interrupted Amelia to throw to an ad break and they're sort of looking at each other and I've gone, oh, my God, oh, my God. It was the worst feeling knowing that I was responsible. And I remember Amelia just being like – Okay, we're going to go to an ad break now. She'd obviously registered what would ha- what had happened, and I just burst into tears. And I thought, oh my god, that was that was the worst thing. That was that was so bad. And they were both so good about it, and the director was so good about it, and even my boss. Like I remember my boss saying to me, "Cass, if that's the worst thing you're going to do, you're not doing too badly. Don't worry about it." But it was just it's just that live TV element. You get caught up in it and you think that what you're doing is the most important job in the world. Yeah. And when you're in the control room and there's breaking news and you've got to take it, but you've got to time out the bulletin, it's just like ah! But at the same time, it's great. James Boyce had an extensive career in radio and TV, but in episode 22, he talked about what it's like to work for a prime minister. I remember waking up that morning. So, you know, the, the night of the election was great, but I, I certainly in no way was celebrating. I mean, it was a pretty overwhelming experience. And um, I went to my hotel room, went to bed that night, and I just remember waking up and thinking the moment my feet hit the ground, we're in government and we've got a hell of a job to do. And that was a pretty full-on feeling to come over you. Um, And it was, it was like that. I mean, it is just a bizarre experience to suddenly be in the Prime Minister's office, getting in the car with him for the first time with a flag on the front of the car, fluttering away is just mind-blowing experience. I mean, you know, they're the sort of symbolic things that you remember that just go, wow, I'm actually here working for the, sitting next to the Prime Minister of this country. In episode 18, Sarah Forster told me why she gave away her television career in Rockhampton. Here I was covering the murder of a goat that was the lead story on the six o'clock bulletin. And I thought, mm, this is not cool. I, I want the big stories. So. Do you still have vision of your story there? Unfortunately, the goat? unfortunately, I do. That and uh, the frogs out in force when we got some rain one day. <laughs> big stories. <laughs> so you packed up the barina and came back. To yes, shit. all the way back. Poor dad had to fly up to Rocky, jump straight in the car, drove me home again and tail between my legs because I had no job. Do you so, still talk to him about that? 
Yeah, we do. We laugh about it. He actually sends me a text every year on the anniversary of when we got there saying, oh, that's cool. yeah, remember what we were doing this time, you know, 13 <laughs> years ago, Sarah? And I'm like, hmm, yeah, I'd rather not. Jeff Field reflected on leaving the Kyle and Jackie O show in episode eight. I was angry, um, like anyone would be, I suppose, bitter. But looking back on it now, I just look back on the good times I had on the show. I reconnected with Jackie. That's great. And um, still waiting, still waiting to talk to Kyle. But you never know. Um, so would you? Would you? Meet with him? Would you? Of course, I would. Men, oh, I men, don't men hold rich with Kyle. I don't hold grudges against anyone, even though a lot of my close friends would know how angry I was at the time. But that's hey, that's life, and you've just got to learn to let go. Um, I had some great years on that show. It propelled me to um, gave me a profile I never thought I'd have. In fact, it can be damn annoying at times. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, but you know what? I'm looking back on those years at Today FM with Kyle and Jackie and with Hamish and Andy reading news on their show, even though I wasn't really part of the show. As, as, as I look back on the good times. Let, let's forget the last six months where I wasn't enjoying it. Matt McDonald shared his thoughts in episode 23 on what it was like in the final days of the 2UE newsroom. Well, so there was so much going on that it didn't really dawn on me the enormity of what was happening. So we got, I think it might have been the Monday, they said to us, right, so uh, the newsroom's moving to Piermont as of Thursday, um, blah, 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 you'll all find out in the next few days whether you get a job. It's like, okay. Um, and it didn't really click to anyone that us moving to Piermont meant the end of 2UE News, like it just didn't, there was so much shit going on and we were worried about so many other things. So that was the Monday. I got tapped on the Tuesday and then everyone else kind of found out on the Wednesday and Thursday. And then it wasn't until Sarah Morris tweeted something from London. She'd been in touch with me and I told her what was going on and then she tweeted it and that's when it kind of became public knowledge that today was the last day. Yeah. Which, you know, we already knew but didn't really think too much about it. And, again, I was in and out of redundancy meetings all day so I – didn't know what was going on around me. Uh, and it wasn't until Peter Overson called late in the afternoon. It's about three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'd done a bit of work with Pete in the years prior to Austeria, but hadn't spoken to him for years. Mm. He, he was flat on his back after having back surgery. And he rang me and said, Matt, it's Peter Overton. He said, oh, I heard what's happening. I've been following you since Triple M. Really Sad to hear what's happening at 2UE. I'm going to be listening tonight. And at that moment I went, shit, this is a big deal. <clears throat> like, this is important. And then TV stations are ringing asking if they can send their cameras in. I'm like, oh, shit. Because I already bagged about three days later, stuff is all I'm doing, the last bulletin. Yeah, and that's when it dawned on me, went, oh, yeah, this is actually a big deal. How does it sit with you, knowing that you're the last person to ever read a news bulletin on 2UE? Um, Do you have a copy of it? Yeah. Yeah. Have you listened to it? No. Will you listen to it? Oh, yeah. It's not that I don't want to listen to it. I just no. haven't listened to it. Um, it's it, look, it, it was an honour. Um, obviously sad. I don't know how I got through that bulletin because I have never, ever, ever been nervous doing a news bulletin ever in my life until that night. 
I think it was just probably the enormity of it all. In fact, there was TV cameras in the news booth and about 70 people all standing outside watching on. A big feature of the show has been my guests offering advice to anyone looking to break into the media industry, which started way back in episode one with Andrew Moore. If you have the ability to pinpoint and think, okay, maybe I'm not going to be a footy commentator, I'm not going to be a current affairs host, but I love chasing those interviews or I'm a great writer or I think if you've got someone there who can sort of harness you in that direction and help you along, then it's a, it's a big advantage. But you've got to be self-aware about what comes naturally to you and what doesn't and not let ego get in the way. That'll take a few years to learn. That does for most people. Um, but there's a thrill in the face of an actual producer, like I've seen in you and my wife and a few others over the years, who have had the chance or have done both, broadcasting and behind the scenes. And I really admire people who can say, that bit in front of the mic's not for me, this part's for me. And they get a bigger kick than the interviewer out of what they've set up and, and if the interview goes, well, you don't want to let them down because <laughs> of the hard work they've done. But, yeah, be aware of your restrictions but but embrace as much as you can to work out what they are. Don't, I don't think you need to be at a rush to determine what you're not good at and what you are. I think you can allow yourself a few years to do that. But also just just get involved, get get to know people. If you want to be in radio, you know, write to me, write to anybody, write to the FM people, write to the AM people to try and get in and, and observe and that's basically the best thing you can do. Through observation I end up getting a job identifying photos at Rugby League Week every Friday off the Great Ian Heads uh, when I was 15 or 16. That was my first paid job and then I had to pass down at TUE on a Saturday the uh, the latest odds to Johnny Tapp while he was on air for the two races away, that sort of stuff. And you do get a bit of money. Back then it was you know, probably about 30 bucks a day. It was huge uh, in the mid-'80s. But if, if, unless you're prepared to do all that sort of stuff, you're not going to make it. Well, there we are, some of the most memorable stories shared by my guests in the first 27 episodes of the Media Mates podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or review. That way, more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.